John chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. This begins a new part of the Gospel of John. Do you remember what's happened so far? There was the first 12 chapters that spoke of the signs of Jesus in his ministry, both in Judea and in Galilee. And then there were chapters 13 through 17 in which he's been talking to who? God, disciples. His disciples and then God. He, talked, he taught them in the upper room. And perhaps it says, rise, let us go from here. So perhaps he was on the way in the city somewhere. We don't know exactly, but we know he was teaching his disciples that night and then prayed to his father. And so we're going to pick up then in chapter 18 where it speaks of then his betrayal, his trial, his crucifixion. So let me begin then chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to him, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, They drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's blessing upon his word. O Lord God, we give thanks to you for the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for recording it, preserving it, bringing it to us this very evening. We ask that you would grant us ears to hear, teachable hearts, that we might understand and be moved by what you would have us to learn. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why was Jesus born? To save us from our sins. That's right. Most of us, we were born because, well, we were conceived and There's biological reasons for that. Of course, it's all according to God's will, but either you would be a human or you wouldn't be at all. 
but it's a little different with Jesus. He didn't have to be born. He already existed. He was God from all eternity. He did not have to be born. It was a very special reason why he was born, why he became man. And that comes out in this passage, that he had a mission. And he would not act like other men when the people came to arrest him. He himself was conceived by a miracle, a direct intervention of God. No human hand at work, but born conceived of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. And like I said, unlike us, Jesus existed even not only before his birth, but before creation itself. He lived with the Father in eternal glory. So why did he become man? Yes, for us, for our salvation. He took upon himself this office, being given a people to save by his Father, so that he would live his whole life with this goal in mind. He lived to do his Father's will. He said, that's like my meat and drink. You know how much you like food? How much do you like food? Do you guys like food? That was how much Jesus loved doing his Father's will. Probably more so, but you get the idea. That is what he lived for. He had been given a charge, and he became man so that he might suffer and die as a man, for man. Now, that comes out in a striking manner in this passage, because Jesus did not act like a normal man. How would most people respond if a band of thugs or a band of officers, I guess in this case it's more than thugs, but uh, they were not acting very justly, but they had their soldiers and officers come to arrest him in the garden. A number of people might have taken the opportunity to escape, or at least to just wait until they were found. But Jesus steps out and makes himself known to them. Not only that, most people wouldn't know what was going to happen. They might give themselves in thinking that they'd be able to talk their way out of it. Right? If the police arrest you, you might go along with it. You don't want to make a fuss because you think maybe you could call a lawyer and get things sorted out. But Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew that he would be unjustly put to death. Not only that, but, but a very hard death, a cruel death, and a, a death that would also involve suffering for sin. It was a death that had just a little bit earlier, we know from the other Gospels, while he was in that garden, wrung tears and, and sweat that was like drops of blood, thinking about what was about to happen. He knew what was about to happen, and yet he did not shrink back. He did not escape. Now, most people, if they knew something was going to happen bad, and they wanted to get away from it, they still might not be able to. I mean, this was a, a powerful band of soldiers and officers. If the FBI was out for you, you might want to get away, but you wouldn't be able to very well, right? You might not be able to get out. Well, Jesus was able to get out. Jesus was able to get away. Not only did he have a disciple with a sword, but we'll see him in this passage. He just speaks a word and they're flat on their backs. Jesus had power. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew he was going to be treated unjustly. He was able to get out of there. And yet he goes forward and he says, who are you looking for? You looking for me? I'm the one you're looking for. Take me. Let the others go. Don't put that, put that sword away. We don't need to resist. Trust me. You just saw me knock them down with my words. 
I don't need your help. And he went off purposefully to lay down his life. And that last comment that he makes is important. Shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me? This is what he had come for. This is what he, why he had taken on this flesh and blood to begin with. That he might suffer for his people. He had come to die for the people and to not lose one of them. And so the only begotten Son, who is God, had become flesh in order to lay down his life willingly for his people. We see both his divinity in this passage and his humanity. He was God. He says, I am, and people fall back and fall down. That's not the way most people, if I said I am, do you think anyone would fall down? No. No. He is the great I am, the one who said to Moses, I am who I am. Let them know that I am has sent you, sent me, sent you to them. Uh, he is one of divine power. He is one God with the Father and the Spirit, equal in power and glory. He is the eternal Son of God who was with the Father in the beginning, eternally begotten, not made. And he knew what would happen. He had supernatural knowledge. He could knock down his enemies with his name. As the other Gospels record, he could have called for legions of angels. His armies were bigger than their armies. He could have called for them. They sought a man, but they laid hold of God. But he did not resist. Not only is he God, but he was also man. That's how he was able to die. He was Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth was God, but that name he got as a man. He was named Jesus at his birth because he was born to save his people from their sins. He was called Jesus of Nazareth because that was the little town where he had grown up. He was born in Bethlehem, but had grown up in the little town in Galilee called Nazareth. He took on our nature that he might die, that we might go free. So even though he had tremendous power, he did not use it to escape, but willingly was led to the slaughter, like a sheep is led to the slaughter without putting up a protest. So Jesus was complete in his godhood, complete in his manhood, all that God is and all that man is, yet without sin. We call this his two natures, his divine nature and his human nature. Do you have two natures? You have one nature. You are man. You are human. But Jesus was both God and man. And these two natures belong to the same person, one and the same Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. This person is the one who did the work of redemption. It would be wrong to say his human nature did this and his divine nature did this. Natures don't do things. Persons do things, right? The person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he died, he lives forever, he is omniscient, he has blood, but he does these things according to these two natures. He does divine things according to his divine nature, by virtue of his divine nature. He does human things by his human nature, and therefore is able to do the work both of God and man, and to be mediator between God and men. So, 
God stays God, man stays man. There's no half half God, half man, like the way a centaur, that mythical creature, is half man and half horse. It's not even it's not really a man and not really a horse, right? That's not the way Jesus is God and man. He's all of God and all of man, yet one person. The two natures remain distinct and complete, without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. Distinct, but not separate. Now, this doctrine is important for many reasons. It teaches us the identity of our Savior, the one we talk about a lot, that we worship, that we follow. It preserves the distinction of God and man while joining them together in Christ. It explains his work of mediation, how he was able to save us. But in this passage, this doctrine shows how he went to his death willingly and purposefully. He wasn't just a man caught up in the events of his time. There's been many people who were famous for a time and then things got out of control and ends up meeting with a death. But Jesus didn't simply die as a troublemaker. Uh, He laid down his life, not only as an example of man's injustice, but as an example of the love of God in saving sinners. He was fully in control of the situation. Now, in our passage, the first three verses give us the setting. He has been in the city of Jerusalem, either in that house or outside of the house, teaching, praying. But having spoken these words, at night he goes out across the Kidron Valley. Do you know where Jerusalem is, Catherine and Anne? Anne. Anne. Jerusalem's on the top of a hill. And so you have to go down the Kidron, into the Kidron Valley, and then back up. You know what we call that hill that's next to Jerusalem? The Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives? And there were olive trees that grew there. And one patch of olive trees, a garden, was called the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus went there at this time. And in fact, this wasn't the first time he'd been there. This was a place that he would often meet with his disciples and teach them there, probably pray with them there. In fact, they went there so often that Judas could guess that they were headed there, that he knew, I know where Jesus is going to be tonight. He's going to be with the other disciples in the garden on the Mount of Olives. But he would use that knowledge, having seen Jesus pray there and teach there, to now betray his Lord and to give him into the hand of his enemies. Because that's what we also find. While they're there in Gethsemane in the garden, Judas guides a band of soldiers and officers. The officers would be like the temple guard that were, that were under the Jewish authorities, the chief priests and Pharisees. Then a band of soldiers too, from Pilate, probably the Roman soldiers, uh, who were sent with them. They had lanterns and torches in case Jesus tried to run. They would be able to find them in the dark, even though there was also a full moon because it was Passover. But they also came with weapons to take him. Because who knows, maybe this man will try to lead an uprising. They would come out with armed with sword and shield to arrest Jesus. Many people comment on the fact that this happened in a garden, in an orchard. Just as the first Adam uh, was in a orchard, was in a garden, when he betrayed his God when he sinned by taking the forbidden fruit. 
So it was in this garden that the last Adam, that Jesus, would submit to his Father's will, would obey him even unto death, and would give up himself for the lost race of Adam, for those who had fallen in Adam, for those whom he intended to save. Well, we find this theme that he is powerful in God and yet gives himself willingly in several different ways. Let's start first with verse 4. Jesus knew all that was going to happen and nevertheless came forward. I already mentioned that, right? But that is stated explicitly in verse 4. He knew what was going to happen and yet came forward. Jesus was not swept away. He had supernatural knowledge of what was going to happen. But he didn't use that knowledge to get out of there. He used that knowledge to be purposeful now in stepping out to those who were to arrest him. Verses 5 through 6 speak of how when Jesus revealed himself, that he was the one they were seeking, when he said, I am he, that's Judas, who was with the band of soldiers and the officers, they all fell back and fell down. Now, his words where he said, I am he, identified him as Jesus of Nazareth. In one sense, it was a natural response to the question, um, are you, you know, we seek Jesus of Nazareth, I am he, but it also echoed God's revelation of himself in the Old Testament and Exodus, as well as in Isaiah. In Isaiah, this phrase is used such as in 48 verse 12, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called, I am he. I am the first, and I am the last. This is not surprising to find in the Gospel of John. We learned from the beginning that this word who became flesh was with God and was God from the beginning. He reveals God because he is God. Let us worship Jesus then with that worship that belongs to God alone. His mere words caused them to fall back to the ground. So this was God come in the flesh. But did he use this power to escape? Yeah, no. no, he didn't. He waited for them. And he asked them again, are you, who are you seeking? Are you sure you're seeking? Do you have the right guy? And yet, despite being knocked onto the ground, they still sought Jesus. Judas didn't repent. Uh, they still sought to arrest him. And so Jesus revealed himself again. But he did ensure that his disciples would escape. He didn't use his power to escape himself, but he did use his power to ask that his disciples be spared, to let them go. I'm the one you're seeking, he is saying. So he gave himself up that his disciples might not be lost. And so this would fulfill what he had said, that he wouldn't lose any of them. Now, him sparing them this trial, letting them get away, was probably good for them spiritually. They were not in a condition yet to undergo that trial. Uh, it was certainly protection of their life in the short term, referring to physical life. But Jesus was also looking out for them spiritually, because that is the full meaning of not being lost, that he would preserve them to eternal life. In fact, I think there's something symbolic here as well. John often says things that are somewhat ironic or, or have more meaning to them than you initially think. Jesus would give himself to death so that 
his disciples would go free. That they would not perish, but have life. And of course, the, the full meaning of that is that he would die so that they would not perish forever, but have eternal life. So Jesus laid down his life for sinners. All those who come to him shall be received by him and shall receive the benefits of his death. Death threatens all mankind, but he gave himself up to death that you might have eternal life. Now, even after doing that, after saying, let the disciples go free, did all the disciples go away right away? No. No, there's one disciple who decided that he wasn't finished yet, that he wanted to save Jesus. Jesus was trying to save them. But Peter thought this was the time to act. He had a sword, and he was going to defend his Lord. And he got his sword out, and he was going to take out the servant of the high priest, one of the men sent to arrest Jesus. He was going to get him on the head. And instead, he only knocked his ear. Maybe the guy swerved at the last moment, but he caught his right ear. Maybe he was cutting this way and got that ear and didn't kill the guy. And that's all that Jesus allowed to happen. He said, put that sword away. We know from the other Gospels, he also healed the guy's ear. In this Gospel, we learn their names, that it was Peter who had the sword, and the servant's name was Malchus. And uh, Jesus rebuked Peter. Not the first time that Jesus had rebuked Peter. Peter had thought the whole idea of being crucified didn't sound like a thing worthy of his Lord. He was still learning what Jesus was doing. But Jesus says, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You know, he he could have called for angels. He could have used his divine power. But more than that, the reason he didn't use these physical or spiritual weapons is that his whole purpose was to die. That that's how he would overcome the evil one would be by laying down his life and taking away all the weapons and power that the devil had, binding the strong man by laying down his life as a sacrifice for sin. And so his kingdom would not come in Peter's way, but by dying for his sheep. So he would take the cup. The father had a cup for him to take. What is that? What does that mean? What does it mean to drink the cup the father would give him? Well, in the Old Testament, the cup of the Lord or, or the, the, a cup that was given to people was a metaphor often for God's wrath, for God's judgment. Thinking about wine, wine could be a good thing, could be a blessing, could be refreshing, but it also, of course, can, to excess, called drunkenness, cause drunkenness, could cause someone to stay or could someone, cause someone to be put to shame. And so it became a metaphor for when a nation might be stripped bare, a nation might be destroyed and be wrecked and, and humiliated. And so it became a metaphor for God's punishment, for God's wrath. And here, Jesus had a cup that he would receive, a cup of suffering for the sins of his people, their sins laid upon him, the iniquity of, of us all laid upon him, and he would, would suffer for those sins. He would drink the cup that his father would give him. He would do his father's will, being obedient even to the point of death. Well, then in verses 12 through 14, we find that Jesus is arrested. He's actually brought to the high priest's father-in-law. There's a little politics going on at the time. 
Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, and he was kind of the patriarch of this influential clan of people that had power in Jerusalem. And so the real power seems laid with this father-in-law, even though Caiaphas had the office of high priest. So Jesus is brought to him, but John goes on to mention Caiaphas and point out that this was the same Caiaphas that had accidentally prophesied that had said it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So another reminder that Jesus, who's being bound, who's being arrested, was going to give his life for the people, that he would die for his people. He would die for all those who would believe in him, that they might be saved. So again, his death was not merely a miscarriage of justice. It was a purposeful death, a substitutionary death, being a substitute for us, a saving death. So in thinking upon these things then, the arrest of Jesus, his betrayal, that this is why he was born, this is why he had come, we should be humbled that God himself should humble himself to such a depth for you and me. That not only would he become a little infant, a little baby, which is amazing to think that that God himself would, would take on such a a form, but more than that, to suffer and to die, to be humiliated, to take upon himself our sins is even a greater thing. Not only be humbled, but to believe in him, to lay hold of such a benefit, to be one of his people through faith in him, that you might be let free, that you might not be lost, that you might be kept by Jesus who died for his people. And then to be grateful that God took on flesh for this purpose, that you might not be lost. And then to be comforted for Jesus, who is God, is also man, a human like you and me, who is merciful, who knows our experience, who became man to help not the angels, but the offspring of Abraham and who is a merciful high priest, who makes propitiation, who made propitiation, who reconciled us to God, who even now intercedes for us at his Father's right hand. So let us give thanks to our God and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Join with me in prayer. O Lord, our God, we give thanks to you for the gift of your Son, for his saving work that... By his wounds we were healed. We ask that you would therefore cause us to to serve him with joy and cheerfulness, to make use of this life that we have been given unto your glory, that we would not be cast down by our hardships, but rather to look to the gift and to the hope that we have, that we would follow our Lord uh, through whatever your will is for us, uh, that we might... Uh, embrace it and to submit ourselves to your wisdom and to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.